I really enjoy working with salespeople and I think mm -hmm. they're very skilled and amazing people to work with, but there is data that shows their attention span is usually less than kind of, you know, when you would compare to someone else in the population. So you're starting out with a reduced attention span in the sales organization, and then you pile social media on, on top of that. We've seen a decrement in attention, but there are ways to get around that, okay. like using innovative formats, like things that are fun, like gamification. Hi, friends. Welcome to the Sales Enablement Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Paul. That was Kristen Tereshevsky. Kristen is the CEO of 11.2, their developer of training software using gaming to focus on training technical salespeople. So we started a conversation today talking about the challenges of training technical salespeople, technical sellers. But we start off by diving into Kristen's very unique career journey into sales training and her path from being a flight control engineer for NASA on the shuttle and US Russian space programs to training seller. And what that experience working in the environment of NASA taught her about how to train technical people. Then we explore what Kristen believes are the three elements missing from sales training today, including a clear plan and the use of integrated learning methods. And we also then get and talk about the personalization of training, especially through the use of gamification. So we get into all this and much, much more. But before we get to Kristen, I want to remind you to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. So thank you for your help with that. And let's jump into it with Kristen Tereshevsky. Kristen, welcome to the show. Thank you, Andy. Great to be here. Yeah, we made this happen. We did. <laughs> A little backstory will spare everybody, but we made it happen. We overcame technical challenges. Indeed, we did. As we should. So, so people who don't know anything about you, uh, tell us a bit about you and, and what you do. Um, yeah, so I'm a biomedical engineer by degree, but my life and professional journey has taken quite a few twists and turns. Yeah, I was, um, was going to say, yes. <laughs> my first stop uh, was at NASA as a flight control engineer. Um, I worked in Mission Control Center and had the great... Uh, wait, 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 wait. Don't run right past that. So were you like in the astronaut program? I was not in the astronaut program, okay. but I wanted to be. So um, okay. our group were the people who sit in Mission Control Center during shuttle and space station flights. Uh, and we, we react to sort of any sort of engineering issue that would take place that might have an impact on astronaut health. So I did astronaut training, applied to be an astronaut, but um, we ended up leaving NASA and uh, I was not selected, but I would go right. in a heartbeat. Oh, yeah. So what were they when you were there? What were they flying? Still the shuttle? So I started in the shuttle program um, mm -hmm. and worked, I can't remember, years of flights and then had the great opportunity to go to Gagarin Cosmonaut Training Center nope. uh, and live at, um, it's called Star City. I went with two astronauts and two physicians and we essentially created the groundwork for the space station program. So we built our U.S. operations base there, uh, did some flight control in the Russian Flight Control Center, did, you know, more astronaut training, mm -hmm. kind of got the business, kind of my first startup, I say, I've been involved in startups since, but it was yeah. really kind of my first sort of startup experience. Uh, and then after Star City, I had the opportunity to work on the space station program. So how long were you in, in Russia for that? So I lived one year in Gagarin Cosmonaut Training Cent Center, and then about a year and a half in Moscow, about half mile from um, Red Square. Wow. I loved it. 
I gotta really? say, I, yeah, I love the Russians. I love the culture. I love the the program. Um, you know, it was really kind of the next frontier in terms of space. We'd been doing the shuttle. They'd been doing the mirror program. Mm -hmm. And then we came together. Um, definitely a lesson in international negotiations. We had, sure. you know, the all the Europeans involved, the Germans. Um, and it was just a really interesting time. So what was it at that time? So what years were those? You were in Moscow. Uh, so 95, 96 and part of 97. Okay, so still fairly dating early. myself here. <laughs> well, but still fairly early days after the the fall of the Soviet Union. So, um, yeah, imagine a tremendous amount of transition that was happening at that time, and then subsequent to that, clearly. Yeah, and it was it was interesting from the perspective of both all sides were really just trying to figure out what this future looked like. Mm -hmm. You know, we had had our operational programs, but what does it look like to collaborate and like build a space station, to control a space station, to decide on science that flies, to you know, kind of thing. So it was definitely a period of massive transition. And have you heard from colleagues about what it's like now in the aftermath of the Ukraine invasion in terms of that cooperation on the space station? Um, I was actually very fortunate. A good, very close friend of mine just got back from six months in space on SpaceX three. Um, and actually he gave me a call on my birthday and wished me happy birthday, um, from himself and for everybody who was on space space station, which included a few Russians. So, yeah. you know, there was no direct conversation about it, but the impression that I had is, you know, in space, it was very collaborative and, right. um, you know, team kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, I've read some stuff that's you know, sort of called into question the the future of the space station and the collaboration. But uh, interesting. So, all right. So, at NASA, how do we get from NASA to sales? Yeah. So, you know, again, I've nothing really in my life have I said, I'm going to do this and then charted this path. I've been very fortunate and blessed to, you know, have these different things come along. Mm. So uh, lived in Russia, got married, realized mm. that getting married and living in two different time zones probably wasn't the best idea. Uh, so I came back to Houston. Um, my husband and I um, worked for a few more years and then um, I had some children. And when right. I had the kids, I realized I cannot do this 24 hour, 24 seven job and right. be a mom. So I just went into the nonprofit world. We moved to Minneapolis. Um, and then after some years of running the nonprofit, I went back and had an opportunity to help a technical sales organization build a training program. And it was kind of a side project. They're like, Hey, you want to build a training program for us? And I thought, you know, let's try that NASA approach because I saw what, structured, small segments of training can do like at NASA, you know, we had to know way more than we could have ever remembered. So we had to learn this, this stru foundational structure and then have access to all of the answers. So I thought, okay, let's, let's give it a go. You know, what can I lose here? And next thing you know, within a year, we had like 34,000 hours of training. People were using training as a means of selling more, performing more, you know, really getting driven to this knowledge base. So I thought, okay, that, that worked. Mm -hmm. uh, let's try that again. So I went to another company, eight, eight companies later, that approach really seemed to have a significant impact on highly technical sales organizations. So that's where I've been spending my time and energy for about the last 10 plus years. Fascinating. So tell us about the structure, because... Yeah, if you're to ask most 
senior leaders in a corporation and it's been done. It's been asked as, as the general opinion is, well, you know, sales training eh, doesn't really work, right? It doesn't really stick. It doesn't really, you know, one of N number of complaints about it. And it's not really about the content. I don't believe as much as, yeah, we're still doing the, the group lecture approach primarily to training. So, so what were you doing differently that was helping the information stick? So referencing that lecture. So lecture-based training, as you know, was developed in 1914 and it has about a 5% retention rate. Um, one of my favorite diagrams in the world is the GEMS hierarchy of learning or the learning triangle. And it talks about, you know, you sit in a lecture, it's 5%. You add some audiovisual, maybe they'll remember 10%. Mm -hmm. But once you start incorporating conversation and structured training and teaching others, you're driving the retention of a training session down to like 50, 90%. So this is where we want to live in a 90% efficiency because it's cost mm -hmm. a lot of money to pull these guys out of the field. Sure. Absolutely. So, you know, a couple things that we, we do. Number one, micro segmentation or small little bits, um, repeated exposure. People need to hear things more well, than once to. So, so stop, let's go through them one at a time though. So you said small bits. So what's, what's small? Because you know, these days I hear people talk for anything from three minutes to five minutes to nine minutes. I mean, what's, what have you found has been most effective? So that number has changed over the last 10 years. Um, you know, when we first mm -hmm. started doing micro segmentation, people were having a heart attack. We wanted to break it up into five minute sections. Now with social media and depending on the age of the people that you're training anywhere between th three minutes is a sweet spot. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean your whole course is three minutes. It just means that you can talk and teach for three minutes and then you have to break it up with a check for understanding. Mm-hmm. So you teach them something, you ask them, you refresh those key points, and then you go on. So micro segmentation for video is three minutes for lecture based training is no more than 10, 12 minutes of talking. Wow. Okay. And, you know, it seems sort of easy to sort of blame it on you know, the reduced attention span on social media and films and TV. But, you know, is that really the case? I mean, is there, do you see... Yeah, you know, differences. You've seen differences. Oh, absolutely. Well, for starters, and I, I got to say, I pre, you know, lead this with. I really enjoy working with salespeople, and I think mm -hmm. they're they're very skilled and amazing people to work with. But there is data that shows their attention span is usually less than kind of you know when you would compare to someone else in the population. So you're starting out with a reduced attention span in the sales organization, and then you pile social media on, on top of that. Um, you know, we've seen a decrement in attention, but there are ways to get around that. Okay. Like using innovative formats, like things that are fun, like gamification. So you keep people's interest by doing gamification. You keep their ability to retain knowledge through micro segmentation. And then the other thing is repeated exposure. So it's kind of a fancy way of just saying you got to hear things more than once to get it into your long term memory. Right. So training should include repeated exposure, micro segmentation and kind of innovative ways. The The other thing that we just seems very basic, but it, it's surprising how rarely it actually exists is you have to have a learning map. So you, you need to tell someone on day one, this is what you need to know to be successful, or this is the generalized area. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like taking a trip from California to New York. Like you'd never just start driving and hope you right. got there. Right. You'd map it. 
So the same is true for salespeople. You need a learning map so that they know kind of what they need to know, and they should get that learning map like day number one on a new job. All right. So it raises an interesting question. So now, are you working primarily with <clears throat> sellers in a technical environment or, uh, and this distinction might seem a little thin here, but I mean, like non-technical sellers in a technical environment or technical sellers in a technical environment or just like sales engineers, solution engineers or all of the above. So yes, all of the above. So originally we started focusing only on technical sellers. And, you know, some of those technical sellers are engineers, some are not, some come from different industries. But what we found is when you build this training structure, the deployment engineers can use it, inside salespeople can use it. Basically, everybody within the organization can utilize this structure and approach of mm -hmm. the things that we've discussed. So it, it extends beyond just the sales. It's really the salespeople and their entire ecosystem. Right. So second question, this is sort of a broader question, but because you're talking about, you know, mapping out sort of this, this pathway, this ex series of expectations is it's not entirely clear to me that we really know what makes salespeople successful. And so, Excellent. so it's, how do you map that out? I mean, I was just reading a, a really interesting book uh, talking about the difference between vertical development and horizontal development of, of individuals and horizontal development being more the conventional skills and product knowledge training and so on, which basically everybody gets. But, you know, there's this idea within this book, which I think is, is right, is that where people are differentiating themselves is sort of called vertical development, which is, you know, how are you developing more, advanced critical thinking skills, conceptual thinking skills, and more, I think the author called more sophisticated cognitive and emotional, you know, capabilities, which seem like are what really set sellers apart, right? Those who, at least in my experiences, is the most consistently successful is that sort of the, that, that thing, right? That's hard to identify, right? Because you can't really quantify it, but it sets them apart. So how, yeah, the, been thinking about this a lot in the last last week is since I read that book is yeah how are we really figuring out what people really need to learn so that is the the conundrum that struck me 10 years ago when I built this first training program I'm like okay let's see we got tech we've got sales process we've got applications and we were teaching those mm -hmm. things in a linear way mm -hmm. but how do you teach these people how to think right so the original idea was, okay, let's create a sales simulator like we had in Mission Control, you know, where you get and you throw these different sort of problems at the guys. Mm -hmm. So they have to think the same way that they're thinking in the field. We couldn't figure out how to do that. So the next sort of iteration of that is gamification. So gamification requires these people to apply a little bit of tech, a little bit of sales process and a little bit of application. And they may get that one and then they move and they're able to combine all kinds of thinking and apply it all at the same time. Doesn't guarantee this person is going to go to that next level or that they're going to grab onto it. But we feel like requiring people to think in different areas of their profession mm -hmm. will help with that. So give an example of how you do that. 
Um, well, actually, we've been working on um, a software um, game for the last couple of years, which we just released into the marketplace, which is like true gaming interface, like pinball, um, Tetris, you know, those different kinds mm-hmm. of gamif- gamified structures that you used to. But it's testing the players in sales process, buying center, you know, influence team, all that kind of stuff, tech um, and how the tech is applied. And they have to combine all those things at one time. Okay. So it sort of seems like simulation though, to some degree, right? It is. It's, it's, it simulates the thinking, um, it, but the interface is gaming. So it's not like they're walking up and they see a virtual, virtual reality human being, but they're, working on those thought processes and they're working on building those neurological pathways of how they're thinking and applying all these different things all at one time um, to advance their sort of overall ability to, to use and develop those skills that they need to be successful in the field. Hmm. Interesting. At least that's our idea anyway. (laughs) Well, I mean, I, I like the, I like the sound of it just because it's something different. Right. And yeah, we spend untold billions every year on sales training. And yeah, quite honestly, the results haven't been very good over the last 10, 15, 20 years. Not not the results of the training, but sales results yeah, being improved, let's say. And uh, so it's it's yeah, interesting to hear about something trying something different because it's what we need. Well, the other thing is, is I, you know, that's another thing that really just drove me nuts is like, how much does it actually really cost to pull a salesperson out of the field? So I sat down one day, literally added up plan, salary, tech support, shipping hardware, $3,400 a day. And this was five years ago to pull a salesperson out of the field for training. Mm -hmm. And when you sit them down in a classroom with lecture based training, and they're walking out with a 5% retention rate, Mm -hmm. I don't think organizations should accept that return on investment. But it's the easy thing to do. That's what everybody knows. This is why they do it. Yeah, but it doesn't work. Well, I know that. (laughs) And then people get frustrated. They leave their job. They feel like a failure. The company spends all this money. In uh, last year alone, uh, LinkedIn reported that 40% of salespeople left their job or are changing their job. So 40% of the sales force is changing industry, moving around. They've got to have a way to upskill themselves to learn very quickly and to become effective in these new jobs that they're in. Right. And, but I think that that comes from, I said, sort of these, these uh, more human qualities as opposed, you know, we talked about thought, you know, being able to think differently uh, than from just beating over the head with, hey, let's, let's learn how to quote unquote sell again, um, which is what the vast majority of sales training is these days. It has always been, right? And it's, and it's like, it's not that some of the stuff isn't great and useful, but the way we present it, is just missing that something that makes it all make sense for people. And I think this is, you know, you see time and time again, I think it's become accentuated uh, certainly as we in the tech world with SAS and so on is, yeah, Hey, we're going to onboard everybody in 90 days. Right. And they'd be fully productive in you know, three months or six months and completely unmindful of the fact that people learn at different rates. They, things make sense at different rates and yet they have sort of one size fits all training and onboarding program. 
Yeah. And everybody's coming to the table with a different skill set or a different knowledge set or a little bit different experience, and especially in like tech sales. You know, you'll get people who've been lifers in a certain industry and then these amazing salespeople who have no experience there. So you, you, you cannot give the person who just showed up and the person who's been around the same training learning map and training program. I mean, you can, but it's wasting all of that time. Whereas if you can kind of customize it and identify specifically, like this guy doesn't know this, this woman doesn't know that and train them on those things, um, you can just accelerate the whole process. But that personalization, that customization is what love organizations resist. So what's the path forward with that? Because yeah, quite admittedly, training is sort of a, oftentimes sort of a checkbox things for many organizations. Um, and there's certainly been advances in performance improvement we've seen from the world of sports, for instance, that have been very slow to adopt in the business world, or at least in the sales world. So how do you, you know, how do you go forward with that? Yeah. So again, that's where, you know, that, that was something 10 years ago that I'm like, how do you customize these programs? So people don't waste time and really focus on kind of what they knew. And that's where, again, we feel this gamification thing is like, you jump in, you take a challenge, you pass it, you move on, you fail it, you go back and learn. You pass challenge one, two, three, your coworker passes challenge four, five, six, and you're training at the same time at different levels and different topics. So you need to find, or we believe the way to do it is to identify knowledge gaps and train on those knowledge gaps based on, you know, each individual may have different ones. So, you know, you've got your learning map, you've got to have a way to kind of progress through those things you already know and start at the thing that you don't know. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, no, I'm just, I'm, you're probably looking at <laughs> my quizzical look on my face is, is, um, yeah. I mean, it's for me though, it gets back to the point. It's less so about what you know and, and this, it's more about who you are to some degree. I think there's a huge element of that. And, and so how do we, that's why I started driving at earlier is that's, you know, sort of this vertical development yeah. is more about who you are as opposed to what you are, what you know, is I think this is the challenge for us in sales is that <laughs> I could be extreme and say, look, for most companies, you could just stop training your salespeople because it's not doing any good at all. And if we could find a way to put in front of people, hey, let's let's help people become better versions of themselves and whom they are, then will have a much huger impact on their ability to deal with buyers and help buyers really understand yeah, the things that are important and help them get the things they want. Yeah. I, yeah, I totally agree. I agree. And I, I think this, you know, these younger generations are coming in with the expectation of having a way to become their better selves. Um, I was interviewing some 20 somethings the other day and asking mm -hmm. them to get gathering data. What's the most important thing about, you know, where you will go work. Absolutely. A hundred percent resounding the ability to advance and to upskill mm -hmm. and to learn new things. Mm -hmm. um, so to your point, you know, how do we give people the best? I think we have to, or we're going to continue to see this massive movement of people moving from company to company. Um, and there's a lot of kind of old uh, thoughts about how to do it and what training and upskilling should be. And it's a one and done. Uh, I, I believe it needs to take place from hire to retire. I believe it has to be readily accessible. Mm -hmm. I believe you have to constantly ask your sales organization, what do you need? 
Um, you've heard of Kirkpatrick. I mean, I think he's a genius and how he analyzes technical training programs or his methodology, you know, asking him, what are you talking about to your peers? Which is identifying what's of value to them mm -hmm. and what do you need to kind of go to that next level? So um, certainly a, a field of much opportunity right now. Yeah. And I, well, I think the thing that's, that's missing, well, among Let's say among the things perhaps that's missing, but one in particular, and been talking a lot about this recently on this on this program and writing about it is, is just yeah you know, we're missing a really important yeah you know, constituency in in a lot of these conversations, which are the buyers. I mean, if I think selling largely is or the, you know falls in this job to be done job to be done category, which is I believe buyers more so than ever these days, basically hire, quote unquote, hire salespeople to help them make a decision. I mean, there's a lot of instances where, you know, they may go much further in their buying process without the assistance of salespeople in the past. Um, but there's when a buyer says, okay, I want to talk to a seller or I need to talk to a seller. It's for a very specific reason, which is, Hey, I need somebody to, ask me questions that I don't know to ask myself. I need somebody to help me think differently about the challenges we think we're facing and the potential outcomes we can achieve. And we need someone from outside, again, a salesperson to do that. So if they're fundamentally hiring a salesperson to help them get this job done, whoever asks the buyers what they need the sellers to be. That is an excellent point. That, that's a genius. <laughs> that That's awesome. Yeah, I agree with you. Absolutely. So there should be some sort of data gathering opportunity from the yeah. buyers. Yeah. yeah. These are people are coming to help you get your job done. I mean, just as you would hire an internal person to do any job for you as a company, you need them to have certain skills and attributes and experiences and you know, mindsets or whatever. Buyers, same thing. Yeah, that, that would be actually an awesome screening tool. Like they show up, they're ready to hire a buyer. You somehow gather data from them of exactly what kind of questions they're looking to ask and then map it with the profile of your team. That, that'd be genius. There you go. We just figured out the next new thing. <laughs> we just figured out <laughs> the next big thing. Well, I think it is. I think it is increasingly a thing and because, you know, there's, again, I'm talking the show a lot recently. There's data that a a firm that I'm partnering with that, that has done thousands of interviews with buyers and win-loss analyses uh, over the past dozen years and sort of summarized their findings into nine reasons why you win big deals as a seller and nine reasons why you lose big deals. And none of them have to do with the product. <laughs> none of them have to do with the pricing. Yep. Yeah, has to do with the buyers, ex not all, but almost all, the large the majority of it has to do with the buyer's experience with the individual seller. And yeah, it wasn't really, it's not about product knowledge. Right. How, how are they helping me get my job done? Yeah, that's genius. Yeah, it's need-based need selling, right? Or like, you know, what do you need? What do you need? Instead of focusing on feature, feature, feature all of the yeah. time. But that's why it makes it so easy to train that, right? That's what I said. It's sort of this lack of imagination, which I'm you know, curious and interested in what you were doing. It's because it's like, yeah, we just line people up. Let's train them fundamentally in the same way we've been training them for 
you know, hundred years and not acknowledge the fact that, Hey, that really hasn't been working all that well. Uh, let's, let's try something different. Yeah. Yeah. We, you know, part of our initial research is we were super fortunate to have some like hundreds of years of experience, senior sales leadership in these huge global automation companies kind of involved in Mm -hmm. our organization um, from a sales coaching perspective, but from a development perspective as well. And this, much of what we do in the sales hallway of the training is talk about needs, identify the needs. And like, if they, if they, you know, start talking to feature, they fail. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So it's gotta be this sort of need focused, what do you need? What is, you know, need focus approach versus feature, feature, feature thing, which is very, very common in, in technical sales. Well, it, it stems, and I write about this in my latest book, Sell Without Selling Out, that that we just fundamentally give sellers the wrong idea about what their job is. Because if you ask most sellers, and this is, again, anecdotal on my part, but yeah, I talk to groups all the time and, and ask this question, have been over the past umpty ump years is yes salesperson what their job is it basically boils down to you know some some variant of my job is to persuade somebody to buy my product and that's i don't think their job at all yeah i think your job as a seller is to ask great questions of your buyer listen to understand the things that are truly most important to them in terms of the challenges they face and the outcomes they want to achieve as a result of addressing the challenges and then helping them get that. Yeah, I agree. And totally if you have agree. that mindset yep. and you train to that mindset, then these salesy behaviors yeah, that so many sellers default to start fading away a little bit because hey, I'm not here to persuade you to buy my product. Cause when you go with that mindset, you don't really it's not really that important to you to really understand what's important to the buyer because it doesn't matter. My job is to persuade you to buy my products. <laughs> yep, <laughs> right? exactly. Uncovering their need. Yeah, but if I'm here to really understand what's important to you then and then help you get that, then I think I take a different path. And I think it starts, really plays into this idea of the sort of more human-centered attributes that are really important and these emotional intelligence tools and more higher level cognitive tools that help you then relate to the buyer. Yeah. Agree. Totally agree. So we have to change that. I mean, that's, and, but unfortunately it's sort of the going in position and it sort of permeates society and our social, let's say our, our, uh, our worldview of sellers that even people who have no experience in sales, uh, give aside an example on the show from, a guest was on the program earlier this year, uh, Don Dieter Schmelz, who runs the undergraduate sales program at Kansas State University, talks about in her introduction to professional selling class when she does role plays with these 18, 19-year-old kids who have no background in sales. She said they all default to being super salesy. <laughs> As if right. that's what they think we're supposed to be. So well, some portion of our sales training has to be directly pointed at refuting that and making sure people have the right mindset of what this job really is. 
Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, I think even experienced sellers have a tendency to do that. Oh yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. To, you know, pushing and selling and, you know, and, and, you know, we've been fortunate to just interface with hundreds and thousands of different type salespeople. And it seems like the ones to your point that raise to the top are the people who are having conversations and listening and, you know, identifying needs for the, the customer versus coming in with the, the latest, greatest kind of best solution. I, I think the issue you point out is, is exaggerated by what's changing in the world right now with the different world we're living in. I mean, pre-COVID, there were face-to-face phone calls. People are, you know, it's a different world and there's a different mechanism of interaction, I think, today. You know, that personal aspect is lost. Um, so that I think we're facing a lot of changes in, in the sales world right now. Well, yeah, but I think that that's, many of those are overstated, the differences. And I'll, I'll give you a reason why is, is, you know, there's this whole big thing about virtual selling, right? The pandemic, everything's virtual selling. And I'm like, well, yeah, okay. Well, virtual selling started when Alexander Graham Bell invented the telephone. We started selling virtually, right? We're talking to somebody that we weren't co-located with. Yep. And, and I can go back to my own career and the career of many others where I sold hundreds of millions of dollars worth of product and services around the world where 90% of the selling was taking place over the phone. And, and I still think that, that many sellers or organizations and thought leaders going into the pandemic, you know, over a state, how much of the actual selling was taking place face to face. I mean, I think we had a new medium. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you it, know, it really wasn't even new because the fact is, you know, Zoom been around for a while and people been using Skype and other, other video conferencing things for a while, but the adoption certainly is at a higher level, but you know, we've, we've been communicating virtually and people know how to do that. They've been doing it sales for forever. True. From a training perspective, on the other hand, this new world has absolutely helped my cause because people can no longer get together in a classroom. Lecture-based training goes away. Yes. When you have to break things into small segments because you're doing it online. Amen. Here we go. Here's some micro segmentation. So, in many ways, this change has really helped open awareness and open minds about let's change things up a little bit in terms of how we're doing it. We got to take this stuff to the people in the field. We need to take training material to people in their homes. So, um, you know, we're also stressed at the beginning of COVID, but on the other side of it, in addition to the very positive social changes many people have seen in their life, it's really helped the training cause um, from my perspective anyway. You know, I can see that. Yeah. I mean, it certainly stimulated innovation, I think, in terms of how we deliver training, how we think about, about training. Uh, because, yeah, I mean, I've, I've done some in-person uh, you know, since the pandemic, you know, uh, in-person, you know, lecture-based uh, keynotes, let's say. Uh, but, yeah, I think that yeah, innovative online learning is something that really the, the future. But especially if we can, like I said, make it a little bit broad and, like I said, focus about more on who people are as opposed to, yeah, what they know. Yeah. I think that becomes yeah. that becomes the crossroads we need to we need to figure that one out. Uh because I think that is what's holding back sales such as it is. And and certainly, you know, certain segments where you have really low win rates, it's like 
well, what's what's the gap here? Yeah. And yeah. for me, you know, part of my motivation in large part for writing this most recent book was that we just aren't getting any better. <laughs> and and why is that? And I think it's because in large part we focus on this these horizontal skill development instead of helping people think more about, okay, how do I bring the human me uh, yeah. to help the buyer to this process? Yeah, I agree with that. I got to give a little caveat on the lecture thing, just so I make sure I'm, I, I am by no means saying lecture-based training should never be used. I'm, oh, yeah. I, agree. I am just saying, and I, I just want to be really clear because a lot of times we'll set up training, a lecture, some lecture training. In fact, I've, I've got a, a seminar I'm going to tonight on leadership training that we built. Lecture-based training, interactive training is great, but no one should ever show up at all without any pre-learning. So if you do do lecture-based training, there should be some pre-learning involved. There should be some preconditioning involved. There should be some testing involved. And then if it is lecture-based, it should be some repeat back, teach back kind of thing to elevate that retention. I just wanted to clarify that because I don't, I don't yeah. by any means want to say lecture-based training is a terrible way to train. It will never go away. People no. will always kind of call back to it, but you can bring a few things in that really elevate the impact and the effect um, and what people walk away with. Right. And then use tools like uh, QStream, for instance, that's you know, a company that does this micro learning for reinforcement of training that over a period of time that helps people you know, integrate and apply what they learned. I mean, our throttle up software. Yeah, <laughs> ours, well, ours, our software is throttle up. We've got a course builder. Throttle up software. There we go. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I think there are things out there that. Yeah, if you're using them in conjunction with lecture-based training or digital training online or, or what have you. I mean, we're, we're going to be rolling out, um, by the time this airs, I'll have rolled out already, is, is yeah, QStream reinforcement for my book. It's one of the first business books um, to have that type of tool with it. So the readers of the book over the several weeks following completion of reading the book – They'll get these series of emails to test sort of their knowledge and help them, you know, integrate the learning things they learned and be able to apply them. Awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. I mean, because that reinforcement is really the critical part. So very cool. So well, tell us about Throttle Up then and where people can learn more about that and uh, learn more about you. Yeah. So Throttle Up is essentially, so we were building these programs. It was you know, really having a dramatic impact on these organizations, but it was taking us too long to build them. Mm. So essentially we've built software to replace us and it mm -hmm. allows organizations on their own to build these structured programs using the course builder, which creates, um, training courses very quickly. Everybody mm -hmm. within the organization can use it. There's no specialized knowledge required. It's kind of like turning all of the knowledge owners into knowledge providers for that mm -hmm. rapid build. And then the game is where we allow users to apply what they've learned. Um, companies customize it much like Salesforce. We, it, mm -hmm. we provide the structure. They input all of their data. Um, they continuously update it as products and markets right. change. And then you have a way of hire to retire type skill development. Cool. Um, using a software tool. So if you want to learn more, our website is 11.2.com um, and our name, 11.2, you know, we believe that salespeople want to do better 
and will do better if they're given the right tools. So they go from, you know, performance level of here to an elevated performance level with the right tools. 11.2 meters per second is the escape velocity or the velocity an object must travel to break free from the gravitational pull of the earth. So that's kind of our little thing. We feel salespeople can absolutely ascend to maximum heights if they're just given the right tools and the right training and the right opportunity to increase their skill and knowledge. Got it. All right. Well, Kristen, thank you very much. Absolutely. Thank you, Andy. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, likewise. Okay, friends, that's it for this episode. First of all, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen. I'm so grateful for your support of the show. And I want to thank our guest, Kristen Tereshevsky, for sharing her insights with us today. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast, Sales Enablement with Andy Paul, on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. So thank you for your help with that. And thank you so much for investing your time with me today. Until next time, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone. Mm-hmm.